Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In this series of podcasts, we're metaphorically shaking out the old toaster that is UK trade policy, and we're not afraid to take a close look at the three-month-old bits of stale bread at the bottom. Today, the focus is on free ports. The government has promised to create at least 10 free ports, maybe more, up and down the country as a key strand of its new post-Brexit trade and industrial policy. There has been a bidding process for seaports and airports to convert to freeport status, with the deadline for bids expiring on February the 5th. But what actually is a freeport? What can you do in them that you can't actually do in a non-freeport? Enthusiasts for the scheme see freeports as a way of stimulating trade by minimising taxes and red tape and creating employment in deprived coastal areas. Detractors, on the other hand, are less enthusiastic, citing problems which other free ports around the world have faced with smuggling and other nefarious activities. So, are free ports a creative answer to the economic challenges of 21st century Britain, or more of a step back into Jack Sparrow territory? To answer these questions, we have three expert guests on Trade Bites today who are ideally placed to separate the facts from the fantasy and the substance from the spin. I'm joined by Dr. Peter Holmes, a fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. I'm joined also by Edward Farmer, Managing Director of the UK Free Trade Zone Association. And also with us is Paul Swinney, Director of Policy and Research at the Urban Development Think Tank Centre for Cities. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us today. Peter, let's start at the very beginning, as somebody once said. What actually is a free port? What is the defining characteristic of a free port? I think that Edward and Paul can elaborate a bit on how free ports relate to other concepts, such as enterprise zones and so on. But at the heart of it, a free port is part of your territory, which is treated as if it's outside your territory for the purposes of bringing imports and exports in. So a pure free port allows goods to come in from abroad and be processed, stored, or simply re-exported without ever paying the duties which goods going into the rest of the country have to pay. So a free port is a kind of duty-free zone, originally on a coast, but it could be near an airport. Anything leaving the free port into the rest of the country or going abroad to another jurisdiction has to pay duties at that point. In addition, things that are called free ports are often subject to special regimes when it comes to regulation. They may get extra subsidies and they may have infrastructure which is not available in the rest of the country. Now, this is the kind of thing which which Paul is a great expert on in terms of the infrastructure side of it. Of course, Edward knows about the details of how free ports actually operate. I think that's what it's it's like a duty-free zone on your coast or near an airport. 
Fantastic. Well, I'll refer to both of those gentlemen right now. Paul Swinney, if I can start with you, what, from your perspective, what is the point of a free port? What benefits do they deliver and to whom do these benefits accrue? Well, the idea or the, the idea the government has put forward anyway is that they are going to attract an investment from companies who see the benefits of the free port as being something that will help their business. And in attracting that investment in, it's then going to create jobs and perhaps the development of commercial space uh, in areas that are economically struggling and that as defined by the government. I think they're going a little bit further on that in saying that not only are they going to bring in jobs, but actually they're going to become hotbeds of innovation is what a number of government documents say around this. And they see them not only as a tool for just creating jobs, but actually trying to change the course of an economy. I have very grave concerns about the ability for them to do that. But I guess that's something we're, we're going to get into. So I, I shan't go into that already as yet. Edward Farmer, the government has invited ports to bid for free port status, as we were saying earlier. Do we know how many ports have put in bids? And when will we know which ones have been successful? And on what criteria will those bids be judged? We don't know the, the precise numbers. We, we think there'll be more than the minimum 10 that the government appears to be looking for. There's been quite a lot of chatter at the time the bids went in, so I'm guessing that maybe 15 or so have come in. The criteria are quite broad, obviously a levelling up agenda, quite political in a way, um, a lot of political considerations, so the North-South divide, creation of jobs, obviously very important post-COVID, innovation, they'd like to see innovation added as well, and it's quite a broad spectrum of trying to generate economic activity. And... Um, So those are the main aims, and we won't know very much. We might hear a bit on the budget due on the 3rd, where they will probably, but I'm guessing, will say we've got X number of bids, and they might set out how long it will take for them to analyse them according to the criteria that they've chosen. And that's really the next news flow. And in the meantime, we're speculating as to quite what that process is. Talking to the industry, people are not hearing much more until government's done its work. Paul, if we wanted to level up the UK regions, if we wanted to create hotbeds of innovation, do we really need to create these free ports in order to do that? Well, the key question in terms of levelling up is trying to understand why do higher skilled, more innovative businesses locate in certain parts of the country and don't locate elsewhere? The key reasons for that, the number one reason amongst that is availability of skilled workers. If you're a high school business, going to stick your pin somewhere in the map of the UK, you're going to do it in a place where you can get the workers that you require to do the job that you need them to do. So if you haven't got the skilled workers there, that's a pretty big barrier. And indeed, if you look at the location of these types of businesses, you see that their location is very strongly correlated with the, the skills levels that we see across different parts of the country. Then I think you're looking for perhaps other things too about the ability to interact with similar types of businesses and co-locate with them is going to be a driver of that. And so parts of that will affect that will be things around transport, infrastructure, commercial space provision and those sorts of things. But ultimately, the, the key thing is about trying to bring different types of business together and how that then attracts sort of almost a virtual circle of attracting these types of businesses in too. Any policy the government does around levelling up needs to deal with those issues if certain places are not offering those benefits at the moment. The question then is, is do free ports offer that? And I think if you look at the benefits that are on offer, it's just not clear that free ports actually change that. So they don't do anything directly around skills, which is the big hamstring problem for a lot of places. And then in terms of, I think, what they are doing is effectively trying to push down costs, particularly for manufacturing businesses. If you look at the location of high-skilled businesses, cost doesn't seem to be a massive driver for them. 
In fact, it's the opposite. What you tend to see is that higher skilled businesses locate in more expensive areas because they're willing to pay a premium to get access to the benefits that certain places offer. So if instead we're saying, well, this place doesn't really offer the things that businesses are looking for, and we're going to push the costs down even more, that doesn't really seem to be really going in the wrong direction in terms of what it is that we should be trying to achieve. And so for that reason, I think that's where the, the big concerns come around, not only the ability of Freeport to create lots of jobs, but especially jobs in high skill type activities. Of course, the pre-ports are sometimes described as one of the dividends of Brexit. But of course, it is possible to have free ports inside the EU. And indeed, we had free ports in the UK up until 2012 when they were discontinued under David Cameron's government. So, Edward, I'm interested in your views on what the new free ports are going to have that the old free ports that we got rid of evidently didn't have. Well, that's a very good question. I think it's very difficult because, again, if we're talking about Europe, you know, we have to abide by WTO rules and also this new EU-UK free trade agreement. And largely, the whole regulation piece is still untested. Rules of origin and level playing field agendas, for example, still completely untested and we don't know. You're right. I think the core issue is primary legislation when you're saying, is there a difference between the old and the new? And so one of the issues is, do they need, like privatisation back in the day, uh, primary legislation to put this through? And that will really tell you whether things are going to change materially. Because if they use the existing law, which is largely, I believe, the 1979 essentially customs type acts, which is really bonded warehouses, and just orders, i.e. they don't change the law and use existing legislation. And that's pretty fundamental, in which case nothing much is very, very much at all has changed, in which case and it's a pretty existential issue, in my view. Could I just wind back to what the benefits are that they're supposed to bring? Because I think one needs to remember that free ports have been around for hundreds of years and they were essentially to deal with the problem that trade barriers were very high in earlier periods. Any kind of entrepot activity where you brought goods in from one territory and then mixed them up or processed them or even just repackaged them and sent them on to somewhere else was very complicated if you had to pay tariffs on the way in and then on the way out. And many developing countries had very, very high rates of protection on parts and components that came in from abroad. And so the very early free ports were largely about making transshipment easier. And the more recent free ports in developing countries, which are sometimes called export processing zones, they were really about allowing countries to bring in parts and components free of tariffs and then have them re-exported without having this burden of the, the tariffs that come in. But the problem is that when tariffs are very low, as they are in uh, even in the EU, but even more so in the post-Brexit UK, there's very little benefit to allowing a a firm to defer the payment of the tariff until a product is processed and has gone out somewhere else. And in fact, free ports in the United States have a completely different kind of profile to the ones we're going to have here. Because in the United States, there are quite a lot of rather high tariffs. And in particular, there are a lot of very high tariffs on imported 
parts and components, in particular the car industry, has much higher tariffs on parts and components than it does on finished cars. So in the United States, there's a lot of investment in what they call free trade zones. I think I've got that right. Where Japanese producers or European producers just bring in car parts, avoid a 7, 8, 9% tariff, assemble them into finished cars and only pay a 2% duty. And this so-called tariff inversion is the main driving force of employment in free ports in the United States. The circumstances which drive these kinds of investments simply aren't here in the UK. We did a little calculation, actually. My colleagues, um, Ilana Sevitska and Julia Mangtorn, looked at both under the EU's common external tariff and on the proposed UK tariff, whether there were any products which had higher tariffs on the inputs, on the parts, components, materials, than on the finished product, so that you could promote jobs in those businesses, bringing in the imports, the materials, avoiding the duty on those, and then selling them on into the UK without having a high tariff on the finished product. The only industry we could find, it's not to say it's the only one that exists, but the only one we could find, looking very carefully through the tariff regime, was dog food. Unprocessed dog food bears a higher tariff than canned dog food. So the dog food industry could be promoted. And of course, another question which free ports throw up relating to the whole question of tariffs is if a product or an intermediate moves into a free port and then moves out to another customs territory, what flag does that product carry? How is origin determined? Has this been agreed? Is this still a point which is open for discussion? My understanding is it's still open for discussion. I think the other thing about free ports is that it's about land use as much as anything. So permitted development orders, for example, is a big part of what the bids will be about for particularly the bigger ports groups that are particularly the coastal ports groups, I think. And also just adding jobs, you know, so bonded warehouses are poor employers to add value to enterprise. You know, they're typically lights out and they may have some highly qualified maintenance guys, but in terms of large employment, they're quite small. So I think your tax and tariffs is a part of it, but I think the bigger parts are, can you manufacture things? Can you link factories? Can you get people employed and adding value to pay more tax? And the current document, uh, both the bidding process and the consultation, was trying to get all of these things done. So in a way, there's lots of different motivations going on here. And uh, we don't quite know. It depends on the individual business plan for the individual Freeport candidate. And Paul, this is one of the interesting ideas about Freeports in terms of the discussions that the UK government has had around this until now is that it's not just a question of a collection of buildings around a container terminal somewhere by the coast. You can actually link in properties in land or away from the port, which are sort of associated with that Freeport area. So you can see the economic benefits of that, but presumably that also increases the risk that the whole thing becomes a little bit more deregulated and and potentially creates some problems in that area in terms of auditing and making the whole thing run as it should do. Well, certainly I think there's an issue of simplicity in this or not as the case may be. In principle, this policy would work, I guess, well, would have its, its largest impacts if you did it in only a handful of places 
And it was very clear there was a boundary between if you're in this one of a handful of places, you get these benefits, and if you're elsewhere, you don't. I think if you get the more zones you do or the the more areas that one zone uh, covers, so it's not just, say, around the port, but then it's it's sort of areas A, B, and C within the wider area as well, I think then the, the benefits all of a sudden become much less clear. And I think there's a potential risk here, not only, I think, of splitting up one zone into many bits, but also the government sort of saying, well, we've said we'd do 10, but actually we're going to do 15, or maybe we'll do 20. I think the more and more you do of them, the, the more competitors you have. And I think the benefits of being in one individual free port then become less and less, because why would I then go to your free port when there are another 20 areas across the country where that's the case, as opposed to there only being, say, three or four elsewhere. And so this is where I think we've got to be very careful. If we look at enterprise zones, which is a policy which is not unlike free ports. And we've had two cracks at those. We did them in the 80s and 90s. And then the Cameron Osborne government brought them back in in 2011-2012 time. They are quite similar in that they're especially economic zones, areas drawn on a map, where if you locate within the zone, you get certain benefits. And if you don't locate in the zone, you don't get those benefits. Planning has been one of them. Business rates reductions has been one as well, as well as I think other things like broadband provision, et cetera, were also thrown into to some of them too. What's interesting is that both waves of those zones in the 80s and the, in the 2010s have both been affected by very large elements of displacement. So it's not a case, so they've created jobs, but actually a lot of those jobs have been businesses that have hopped the boundary because all of a sudden they want to take advantage of the benefits that are there. And then I think in the more recent ones in particular, we've seen two things. One is that the number of jobs created were much less than what the Treasury predicted. And the second one is that the types of jobs that were created tend to be lower skilled. And again, this comes back to my earlier point about if the benefits that an area offers is attractive to low skilled employment, then it'll generate low skilled employment. But if you're actually trying to change the benefits that an area offers so that it's attracting in high skilled employment, then you might see higher skilled employment being generated. The problem with enterprise zones is that the types of policies that were put in place were effectively attractive to low skilled businesses and not high skilled businesses. Free ports are the same. There's one further concern, I think, about free ports, which is even beyond the enterprise zone position, is that enterprise zones didn't create that many jobs and they were open effectively to all types of business. Free ports, by their very nature, because we're talking about import-export of goods, are actually much more targeted on just manufacturing businesses. So if we saw enterprise zones with all sectors not creating very many jobs, then you should expect that actually the impact of free ports creating jobs is even less than that. So that's why we, again, should be cautious about what we think the impacts are going to be from an economic regeneration perspective. Peter, it looks like this is a kind of a regional or industrial policy initiative dressed up as a trade policy initiative to a large extent. Now, it doesn't really matter what policy box you put something in. If it's worth doing, then why not do it? But what's your view on the trade implications for free zones? Will it stimulate imports and exports? And if it will, what kind of trade is it most likely to thereby stimulate? Well, again, it depends on the tariff structure. Where tariffs are very low, it's impossible for a free port as such, as opposed to all the other useful things that Edward is stressing and Paul's been talking about, it's impossible for the trade stuff to have much impact if the tariffs are themselves very low. One thing which happens in developing countries where trade barriers are very high is that export processing zones can encourage exports. Actually, the evidence across 
the world from sort of statistical studies and the case studies in the United States are that what these things do is they concentrate on import promotion. Basically, they are, I mean, Paul's been emphasizing the, the role of warehouses and so on. And you bring stuff in and you package it, you process it, and then you send it on into the rest of the country. It's not generally, except in rather unusual cases where countries have got very high barriers to parts and components coming in. It's not a way of promoting high-tech exports. It's a way of relocating the assembly of imports that are coming into the country into this processing zone. So what we want to do, as the discussion suggested, we want to be promoting service exports. And there is um, Shankar Singham and his group have suggested that there could be charter cities, there could be places on the coast or even inland somewhere, which are outside the standard regulatory framework, and all kinds of stuff can be exported from there. But the one thing we haven't discussed is, of course, the tax-free zones, that the fact that one of the kind of trades you can encourage is warehouses where people, I mean, quite literally hoard their stolen goods, the money laundering operations. I mean, we love the idea of super high-tech banks to grow, super high-tech financial services to grow up, but we're actually more likely to get uh, money laundering businesses. So as it was Paul said, we're not going to promote many services, but the ones we do promote with international linkages will be rather odd ones that the government has actually made it very clear is not what they want to attract. I, I was actually on a Zoom call run by the Treasury, where it was specifically about how to prevent free ports becoming just dodgy tax havens. They don't want that. So basically, the simple answer to your question is free zones are likely to promote the import of products for assembly on your borders. Edward, are we heading for Pirates of the Caribbean territory here? Are we looking at sort of hotbeds of crime with the... I don't think so. Uh, so you've got customs and border force and all the usual money laundering. I'm FCA authorised, for example. So money laundering, all of those rules are still very much there. We're being monitored all the time. Uh, so I flew, I'm a private pilot. I flew from Londonderry to an airfield near Shannon. I filed the flight plan myself. I filed the crossing form. So the border force knew exactly where I was every moment as I flew across and they could have inspected my plane at any point. Those systems exist and I filed it off my iPhone to show you that the systems are possible. So I'm a strong believer in intelligence-led uh, survey, you know, basically systems and the supply chain. And I think big employers like British Aerospace or Kinetic and people like that or AstraZeneca, believe me, they have very good security and government provided they trust those big employers, um, who they do trust anyway, I think. I think that it's the least of our worries, to be honest. Paul, what about this question of deregulation? There's going to be various concessions within free zones on questions of planning and potentially VAT and other things. Some people worry that this might be a bit of a Trojan horse towards a kind of a much more deregulated, low tax kind of approach to doing the economy. Do you think that's a realistic thing to be concerned or excited about? Or do you think it's much more kind of prescribed than that? I don't think it necessarily leads to a much more deregulated economy full stop. I think, the, again, the purposes of the zone are probably to have the benefits in the zone and not have them elsewhere, so the zone are differentiated from other parts of the country. But I do think that we should use it, if we are going to do free ports, as an experiment. So if it's the case that you know, we allow easier planning, 
And then we get better outcomes as a result of that because actually we build the buildings that businesses need to create value or we create more jobs as a result. Then there's something there for us to learn from that. And we should be thinking about, well, if that is a good thing for economic growth more generally, why are we just then contain it to, to one place? Or maybe we'll find the opposite. Maybe we'll find that that having deregulated planning is is not a good thing and therefore we shouldn't be to doing at large. Similar issues around VAT as well. So I think we should use it as an experiment and we should be trying to measure the results as effectively and efficiently as we possibly can to understand what we can learn from that for broad economic policy making. We're moving towards the end of our podcast, but there's a question I'd like to ask all of you to sort of wrap things up. Free ports are coming in. They will be introduced fairly soon, we assume. I'm just wondering what you think their impact is likely to be on the UK economy. What changes might they deliver? How might they change the shape of business, trade and industry within the UK? Peter, would you like to go first? Well, I would personally say that uh, I think the free port dimension of this experiment is likely to have an absolutely minimal effect, simply because tariffs are very low and uh, allowing people to defer payment of them gives a very modest impact. But on top of it, the costs of putting all the infrastructure in place could be quite high. As I said, goods come in and out and they have to be checked for customs purposes both on entry and exit. So I would say the trade dimension is very slight. But I would very much agree with what Paul said, that uh, if these things are to have an effect, it comes in the other things, the experiments in changing regulations and so on. What Edward has been talking about in terms of land use, all that sort of thing. That's where the effects could be greatest. But in fact, paradoxically, if they succeed in the way that Paul is optimistically hoping that they might, then the levelling up agenda would be completely irrelevant. Because if we're experimenting with new forms of regulation, then this could be applied across the whole country. And it's not at all obvious that the beneficiaries will be the people who, who are living initially in the places which are the first free port. So if I may just mention what I think is probably the most successful, I mean, Paul and Edward would know much better than me, but I think we think of the Docklands as a very successful experiment. But that wasn't anything about freeing up ports. It was about areas that were no longer ports and the industries, high-tech things came in from outside. The local residents kind of got uh, shunted out. So one of the hearts of that was, I think, experimentation on regulation. So what, I, what I'm thinking is, if Paul is right, or, well, let's say, if the optimistic scenario that Paul and Edward are putting forward does work, then the benefits won't be about trade, and they'll be not very much focusing on the people who were initially targeted a little bit, on the uh, people who can run fastest with the deregulation that uh, turns out to be successful. Edward, what's your view? I think the main issue is, can your regional mayors and your LEPs uh, work better with local business? It is an ent- Very loosely, this is an enterprise initiative, very loosely, with many aspects. I think the key proof will be how well can the LEPs or regional mayors work with their local businesses to promote their areas 
and create the jobs that everyone seems to want, particularly on the North South levelling up. And the execution, the proof of the pudding, will be how well that process works. And I think it's quite a difficult exercise, but I think the way it's being constructed by government, it is completely dependent on local enterprise partnerships and or regional mayors working well with their local businesses to try and deliver enterprise. And that will be the proof of the pudding, in my view. Paul, last word from you. So history would suggest that they're not going to have much of an impact, particularly in terms of job creation and turning local economies around. I think if they do create jobs, the types of jobs they will create will be lower skilled jobs because of the benefits that the Freeport policy is offering. And if that happens, we're not changing an economy, we're doing more of the same. We're replicating more lower skilled work. So if we were to say have a Freeport in the Tees Valley, for example, so Middlesbrough and its surroundings, which traditionally has had a struggling economy, has got the jobs it has got has tend to be fairly low skilled. We're going to put more low skilled jobs in there rather than actually tracking in higher skilled jobs. And ultimately that's what Middlesbrough and the wider Tees Valley needs to both improve its own economy, but actually across the north of England, if you want to see the north of England perform better and to, to level up, as the government puts it, we're going to be have to be tracking in higher skilled jobs, not lower skilled ones. Okay. Well there we have to wrap up our podcast today. It's been a fascinating discussion. I'd like to express my thanks to our guests today, to Dr. Peter Holmes, to Edward Farmer, and to Paul Swinney. And most importantly of all, many thanks to all of you for listening. So please join us again next time for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bytes podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.